Thank you, Lucy, for bringing God's word to us this morning. Lucy is one of our newly graduated Stephen ministers. Let's pray before we begin. Lord Jesus, thank you for your presence with us here this morning. We pray that as we look into your word, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what your spirit has to say to each one of us today and to us as a body. And we pray that we would obey what you have to say and that you might be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. When our kids were little, we began to teach them some of the behaviors that they needed to do as part of our family. So we taught them to speak politely to one another, to say sorry when they had hurt someone, no name calling, and other such things. And some of these expectations were around dinner time. For example, everyone comes to the table and stays until the last one is finished. Everyone gets a chance to speak, and we stay seated in our chairs and don't run around during mealtime. These are just a few simple things and we, that we taught them, and of course there were many more. But these are just a few of the actions that we required of our kids as part of our family. One summer, we visited a theme park and had a meal at a nearby restaurant. The restaurant was filled with families with small children like ours. Towards the end of, a, of the meal, a woman approached us and she said, you are so lucky. You have such well-behaved children. Mine are running around and I can't get them to stay seated at the table. How do you do it? We were pretty shocked. But we explained that we frequently communicate our expectations to our kids. There was no chance involved. This was purposeful instruction that we gave to them. In the passage we've just read this morning, Jesus is doing the same. He's purposefully instructing those who are listening and presenting them with a lengthy to-do list of expected behaviors. So just to remind us where we've come from and where we're at in the story in Luke. In Luke 4, Jesus announces that he is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy and that his mission is to bring good news to the poor, bring freedom to the captives and the oppressed, and give sight to the blind. Jesus then moves about Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, healing the sick, and driving out evil spirits. At the beginning of chapter 6, we saw that this makes the religious leaders furious, and they begin to discuss what they might do to Jesus. Jesus' new teaching needs new wineskins. And so he goes up on a mountain and appoints 12 disciples to form the new leadership for the people of God. These 12 apostles become the foundation for the new family of God. Jesus then comes down the mountain to a level place and begins teaching. And he begins his teaching by describing who are the blessed and who are the not so blessed. And last week we found that Jesus brings about a great reversal, that the values of the kingdom of God are the reverse of what the world values. Pastor Andrew unpacked the blessings and the woes in verses 20 to 26, 
But his fair paraphrase of these verses sums up Jesus' reversal. Pastor Andrew said, How fortunate are the poor because they need salvation and they know it. Alas, for the rich, because they need salvation, but everything in their experience is telling them they're just fine. So in the verses that we read this morning, Jesus continues his teaching at this level place and continues with the great reversal. We saw in verses 17 and 18 that there was a large crowd around Jesus that had come from all over the place. In verse 20, we see that the teaching on the blessings and woes was directed at his disciples and his would-be disciples, those who were or would become his followers. Now, in verse 27, he addresses his words to those that are listening. This phrase carries with it a sense of both hearing and of obeying. Jesus is about to teach more about what is involved, the expectations of belonging to the new family of God. And to do this, he sets out some commands regarding the behaviors that are characteristic of his disciples. And the theme of these behaviors is love. Twice in this passage, in verse 27 and verse 35, Jesus says, love your enemies. And this phrase brackets the instructions that are in the middle, highlighting that these responses are to come out of love and out of a concern for the other. So what does he mean by love? And what's it going to look like to love my enemy? First of all, we need to remember that Luke wrote this passage in Greek. And Greeks have a number of different words for love, while in English, we only have one word. So here the word for love that he uses is agape. This is an unconditional love. He's not referring to a feeling. These aren't feelings of love that are warm and fuzzy. These are concrete actions. Agape love is a love of action, and it is a love that is freely given. It's not dependent on a certain type of behavior from the other person. It's a love that is given without expectation of getting anything back, even an apology for mistreatment. It is sacrificial love. So Jesus proceeds to tell his followers and us what actions are involved in loving our enemies. And Jesus lays out who our enemies are. They are the people who hate, abuse, and curse those who follow Jesus. They are the people who are hostile towards God and hostile towards the gospel. So when people actively hate, curse, and mistreat Jesus' followers, he says that his disciples are to respond with actions of doing good, of blessing and praying for these people. And further on in verse 34, he adds in lending as well, giving with no thought of return. I can imagine Jesus' disciples gathered around him, listening to him, and as they hear these words, I can also imagine them thinking, what? You want us to do what? Love our enemies? Do good? Bless? Pray for? And lend to them? This is not what I was expecting to hear. Perhaps we're thinking the same thing. 
Remember, the people who were following Jesus had the hope of a conquering king, one who would overthrow the Romans and bring them freedom from Roman rule. What they were now hearing was opposite of what they were expecting. It was a new and shocking teaching. So to drive home and emphasize this new teaching, Jesus gives them some illustrations about what it means to love your enemy. In verses 29 and 30, he says, if someone slaps you on the cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Commentary writers explain that the offense of being struck on the cheek was not so much about the physical pain, although it definitely would have hurt. Being struck on the cheek was seen as an incredibly insulting act. To Jesus' listeners, it would have brought up thoughts of the insult of being removed from the synagogue. Terribly insulting for a Jew. Some commentators say that it was such a severe offense that it was punishable by law. So being struck on the cheek meant to be highly insulted, humiliated publicly, and rejected. So then to turn the other cheek to be slapped a second time, rather than retaliating, implied acceptance of this rejection and humiliation. It also meant that you were left open to vulnerability. You were vulnerable. For today's believers, something similar might be like enduring insults or ridicule in your workplace or school because of your Christian beliefs, or perhaps missing out on a promotion because you won't take part in business practices that are not quite ethical or honest. So you're seen as not being a team player. And rather than insulting or ridiculing these people or getting back in some other way, you treat them with kindness instead. Jesus continues the picture of being vulnerable with the illustration of someone stealing your coat and shirt, and probably it carried with it the idea of a street robbery. So the coat as the outer garment would have been immediately accessible and easy for someone to grab and steal. The implication here is that the person stealing the coat has a need or thinks they have a need, and that the one stolen from would not demand it back, but would go beyond, not only releasing their coat, but offering their shirt as well. The idea in verse 30, giving, everyone, giving to everyone who asks and not demanding back what is taken from you, is similar. In his commentary, Daryl Bach, as well as other commentators, say that in the examples here, turning the other cheek, giving your shirt when someone has taken your coat, and not taking back what belongs to you, in these things, Jesus is using a figure of speech known as hyperbole. Hyperbole is a statement of obvious and intentional exaggeration that is used in order to accentuate the point of the message. So when we hear someone saying, I've been waiting an eternity for you, or I'm so hungry I could eat a horse, they're using hyperbole. They're exaggerating in order to make their point. 
Because hyperbole is used here, it tells us that the point that Jesus was making, the actions required in responding to persecution are important, highly important. Jesus wants us to perk up and listen, as well as obey. We know that Jesus was using hyperbole because it leads to a rather absurd sort of result. For a first century believer to give away their coat and their shirt would mean giving away all of their clothing and virtually walking around naked. They didn't have multiple outfits as we do today, but just one set of clothing. But Jesus is not promoting nakedness, nor is he suggesting that civil rights in general should be given up. This would result in unbiblical anarchy. His point, though, in each of these examples has to do with being totally exposed, vulnerable, enduring suffering, and being taken advantage of for your faith. What he is saying, the message he's conveying in verses 27 to 30 is summed up for us in verse 31. Do to others as you would have them do to you. This, of course, is referred to by our world today as the golden rule. Some people follow this, and a lot do not, especially when they are put in situations of vulnerability. But Jesus says that this is how he wants his followers to behave when they find themselves suffering or being persecuted for their faith in him. Jesus continues to drive home his point in verses 32 to 34 by asking three questions. If you love only those who love you, if you do good only to those who do good to you, and if you lend only to those you expect repayment from, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. What Jesus means by sinners is those who do not or do not yet follow him. Here he is contrasting the behavior of sinners with the behavior of his disciples. He's saying that the actions of his disciples are to stand out as different from those of the rest of the world. Jesus then restates his exhortation in verse 35. Love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Jesus is saying, as citizens of the kingdom of God, as much-loved children of God, you are to behave in a way that reflects the character of your Heavenly Father. And as we do, we will receive a reward. As his children, we will receive much from our Father's hand. Maybe not those things that the world sees as valuable, but kingdom blessings. And we'll experience his redeeming power and purposes worked out in every circumstance of our life. Jesus sums up the whole section of this passage with verse 36. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. This is to be the response of his disciples to all, but especially to those enemies whose actions have caused us suffering. 
And hasn't God experienced the same from us, from all of us? Before we came to know Jesus as our Savior, by our fallen nature, we were adversarial towards him. We were his enemies. We may even have been purposefully hostile towards him. And yet, as Psalm 103 says, he did not treat us as our sins deserved or repay us according to our iniquities. But instead, he reached out to us with love, with mercy, with compassion. We are all the recipients of God's love and mercy. The actions Jesus calls us to show to others are actions that have already been shown to us. And we do not do these actions in order to become children of God. We do them because we are children of God. And Jesus is not asking us to do anything differently from what he himself has experienced. As he went to the cross, he was insulted, humiliated, stripped naked, and vulnerable. 1 Peter 2, 20-23 says, But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he trusted himself to the one who judges justly. Loving our enemy is difficult. Does anyone else find it difficult? Yeah. Actually, I think it's almost impossible without the power of the Holy Spirit living within us, enabling us to love our enemies. Our natural human tendency is typically to retaliate, to seek revenge, to become bitter and angry, and to take on a protective stance rather than to actively respond with actions of love, being kind to those who persecute us, praying for them and blessing them. Jonah is a great example of something we might all do. And Jonah is a prophet from the Old Testament. When God asked him to go and preach to the people of Nineveh so that they might become aware of their sin and know of God's love for them, Jonah initially ran in the opposite direction of Nineveh. But when he finally does preach the message and the people repent, Jonah becomes angry with God. He becomes angry because God showed great compassion and grace to the people of Nineveh when they repented. Jonah had decided, he had judged, that they were undeserving of such grace and compassion. This can be a stumbling block for us too. That when God asks us to love our enemies, we, like Jonah, may not really want to because we don't want to see them receive God's grace and compassion. In our human nature, we can tend to want to see them suffer, just as we have suffered at their hands. The expectation to love can offend our sense of needing to administer justice ourselves. But the verses we have read this morning imply that our part is to love. 
and that we are to leave the justice and the judgment to God, who's the perfect judge. That's his part. He will hold accountable those who persecute believers with the perfect balance of mercy and judgment. This is exactly what the second part of verse 23 in the verses on the screen say that Jesus did. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. The next part of chapter 6 talks more about judging, and Pastor Tim will be unpacking that for us next week. So we cannot love our enemy on our own. We need God working in us to do this. So what's our part? Well, I'm going to suggest two things. Jesus has given us lots of concrete action in this passage, and this action means that we are going to need to trust God with the results when others mistreat us or take advantage of us because of our faith in him. It means that we understand that our lives are in God's hands and that he is intimately involved in every circumstance, including the mistreatment we suffer as his disciples. It's going to mean that we let those who persecute us off the hook and place them on God's hook. It means that we trust all of the attributes of God's character. His love, mercy, compassion, as well as his justice, which he brings about both fairly and perfectly. Think about times when you've been guilty of mistreating someone or sinning against them. Which attributes of God do you call upon? Probably his mercy and his grace. Yet when others mistreat us, we're quick to tend to call on his justice. But we can leave the justice in God's hands and trust that he will redeem our circumstances and accomplish the plans that he has for us, regardless of what others may do to us. I've been around First Alliance for a lot of years, and so I've had opportunity to observe a lot. And I remember years ago, there was a person who frequently came by the church requesting money for various needs in their life. Sometimes they were given an amount from the benevolent fund, and sometimes not, because there's parameters around that. However, I do remember one of our pastors giving to this person out of their own pocket. And one day I asked, why do you give to them? They're just taking advantage of you. I don't remember the word-for-word response, but the gist was that this pastor wanted to respond with the kindness of God to this person's need, or their perceived need, so that they might experience the love and grace of God. And perhaps one day, they might come to know him as their savior. They added that they felt free to be generous to the needy and were not concerned with being taken advantage of because they trusted that the Lord would take care of them and their needs. This attitude stuck with me, and it helped me in learning to grow to be generous to the needy and also in my understanding of God's care for me in my life. Secondly, our part is to cooperate with with God's Holy Spirit and with his work of continuous transformation in us. The Christian life is a journey, and God works in us daily to bring us into maturity. 
into bearing the image of Jesus more and more each day. I want to show you a picture that illustrates what I mean. And this is a picture that we frequently refer to in our Spiritual Freedom Weekends. So some of, it, some of you may be familiar with it. So we have a picture of two houses here. The first house on the left represents us before we trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We live in the kingdom of darkness. When we come to know Jesus, we become part of the family of God and members of the kingdom of light. We belong to Jesus. When the lights are turned on, we can see that there are many rooms in our house. So even though Jesus owns the whole house, there may be rooms in our house where we don't let Jesus through the door. So we may easily allow Jesus' work of transformation in our living room and our kitchen, whatever those rooms might represent to us. But we say, you know, that room on the third floor, that's where I like to keep my bitterness and resentment toward my coworker. She dislikes me because I'm a Christian, and she makes fun of me in the staff room and at meetings, and she lies about me behind my back, and I think that's how she got the promotion I should have received. We say, Jesus, I need to make sure she knows what she did, so every now and again, I'm going to make life at work just a little bit difficult for her, so she knows just how angry I am and how unfair her actions were. I'd really prefer it, Jesus, if you didn't come into that room. Or perhaps we simply have a closet where we keep our right to curse back at the drivers on the road who have cursed us, rather than to bless them in return. But whenever we hold on to these attitudes and actions as our right, rather than forgiving, we keep that room and part of ourselves in darkness and away from God's transforming power. This has two results. We don't walk in the fullness of the freedom that Jesus died to give us, and we are less enabled to do the actions of agape love that Jesus asks us to do in this passage. In this case, to be kind, to pray for, and to bless our coworker or the other drivers on the road. Remember we've said that if it weren't for the kindness, the grace, the mercy, the love, and the compassion of God, we'd all still be stuck over on the left in the kingdom of darkness. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's our job to cooperate with the work God wants to do in us, allowing him to transform our character and enable us to love our enemies with the sacrificial love of the Heavenly Father. Romans 12, 1 and 2 in the Message Translation sums up these points well. Paul says, So here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. 
you'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out in you, develops well-formed maturity in you. At the beginning of our passage today, Jesus says, but to you who are listening, to you who hear me, what do you hear today? What do you sense God saying to you about living out the active agape love to those who are enemies in your life? To be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Perhaps the Lord is pointing to some rooms in your house that you've kept him out of and away from his transforming power. Or perhaps you've not yet given your life to him and named Jesus as your Lord and Savior. However God is speaking to you, take time to talk to him about it, either on your own or perhaps with the person you came with. Or at the close of the service, you might want to pray with those who are at the front who will be glad to pray for you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your unfailing love and compassion towards us. And we are aware that loving our enemies is only possible as we allow your spirit to work in us. So would you come, Lord? Would you let your love and transformational power so surround and fill us that we are enabled to love others as you have loved us? In Jesus' name, amen. Worship team.